welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Will Gibbs and he's the principal at Octopus Ventures and that is one of Europe's largest and most active venture capital firms investing in startups in health and digital therapeutics. Um, You may well have heard of Octopus Ventures. Uh, We've had Guillaume from Octopus Ventures on previously. He's now doing all sorts of cool stuff and he's going to be coming back onto the podcast to tell us all about that. Prior to Octopus, Will's done lots and lots of cool stuff. He's set up many enterprises, including a rare breed pig farm, an organic spirits company, and you can hear more about uh, certainly the rare breed pig farm on the episode. He's got a degree in ancient history, classical archaeology, that's from Oxford. Also, previously, his passion for sailing has actually led him to sail twice around the UK. Awesome to have Will on. He's clearly a man of many talents. Uh, He's turning his hand to health tech investing, and we as a sector are very lucky to have him. So, hope you enjoy this episode, everybody. Hello, Will. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I am doing very well. How are you, James? Excellent. I'm very well, thank you, sir. Uh, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Will? I am speaking to you from uh, sunny Clerkenwell. Um, oh, nice. So I'm watching a big block of flats get power washed down uh, <laughs> as, uh, as we speak. <laughs> oh, excellent. Uh, it's nice. I, I'm looking forward to getting back into London a bit more and, and stuff. We've actually just, uh, we've done, you know, classic scaling startup type we work uh subscriptions now so we're uh going to be in that new building near waterloo where apparently the we work people actually hang out themselves so yeah embracing embracing the startup world as i scale somex um nice nice yeah. it's a nice it's a nice step it's interesting anyway um i'm sure we'll get into scaling and growth and all the rest of it given your background but obviously you and i know each other we've spoken a fair amount and talks about different companies in the sector more broadly and panels and all the rest of it. Um, and yeah, I've been a big follower of Oxford Ventures, I must say, and, and everything you guys have been doing, particularly around some of the, and we've talked about this just, but you know, more of the taboo things that you're investing in, things like fertility and, and stuff that are coming up now and looking forward to getting into it, man. But I guess it'd be great for our listeners if you could tell us a bit about your story. So by all means, tell us the long version. This, this makes it sound very grand. Um, so I'd, I'd say it's probably been a fairly circuitous slash wiggly story. Um, but I've been at Octopus now for about eight years. Mm. And so when I first started, it was a pretty small team, generalist fund, mainly just focused on kind of UK and London. Uh, whereas today there's about 60 of us in the team. I run our health team, got about, 100 plus portfolio companies invest about 200 million a year so i've definitely seen our business like scale and, and change immeasurably uh not not without challenges uh but i think it's kind of broadly we're having a lot of fun pre pre-octopus i suppose more in terms of broader scene setting um did a lot of slightly odd things uh so kind of d- decided i didn't want to go to university set up a rare breed pig farm um, <laughs> in in the middle of Essex. I did uh, not know this. I didn't know this. Oh, this, this, is, this is the real career. Um, <laughs> and then I did an apprenticeship as a butcher. So I, nice. could, I could go from, like, yeah, I think in, in modern 
parlance would be vertically integrated. Uh, <laughs> so I did, did, did the whole process. It was quite fun. Uh, learned a lot, but it was just like hard yards. Uh, yeah. And then set up a organic spirits company, uh, which was also not particularly tech related, but, but kind of good fun. Uh, and then was pressured into going to university, which I did, really enjoyed it. Uh, came out, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Then decided that I wanted to become a expedition medic. And I was like, that for me would be like dream job. So whenever anyone went to the North Pole or Everest or long distance ocean races and needed to take a doctor, I was like, that that is what I want to do. So I spent a year uh, doing work experience in like A and E with like ambulance teams. Uh, I was also did a lot of work with the Samaritans. Uh, so I was a volunteer listener for about two years. Mm. I think that was probably actually the most important and effective professional development slash learning I've ever done in my whole career. Uh, I think once you've done that, if you're ever sent on a course around people management, radical candor, how to listen, how to support people, it doesn't get more real than when you're speaking to someone who is actively thinking about ending their life. And how do you not tell them don't do it, but actually just listen uh, and be kind of empathetic to the extent you can. And so that was, that was amazing, actually. Like I, I would definitely do that again whenever I've got time. And so was, was hell-bent on medicine, uh, had a place to go to med school, did all of my science A-levels from home, from a textbook, albeit meant I had to go back to school and so I was studying alongside like 16-year-olds, even though I was <laughs> what, one degree down. Uh, and then decided actually the week before I was supposed to start med school that I was looking down the barrel of kind of four years of exams plus another five years of exams. Yeah. Uh, and actually maybe I could get similar experience and interest in learning through not going back to school. So I, uh, I kind of bailed for want of a better phrase at that point and sent speculative emails around all of the kind of venture houses and investors in London. I didn't know what venture capital was at that stage, uh, yeah. but I spammed everyone uh, and nobody really responded to me mm. other than the folks at Octopus, uh, albeit this was, this was after like two or three rounds of like broad sure, sure. team spamming. Uh, and I think someone was like, look, just someone meet him for a coffee. And, <laughs> um, and they did. And so then I, I joined as an intern in 2013, so pretty much exactly eight years ago. Um, and at that point, got involved in, in all sorts of businesses, like very much with a kind of generalist lens, uh, some consumer stuff, some B2B stuff. One of my first investments uh, was a company called Permutive, which okay. is a data, data management platform. Uh, so not not related really to health, uh, and so we used to have like board meetings in my kitchen. It was it was pretty scrappy but quite fun, uh, and uh, and that business is now raising a massive Series C round. Powers Amazing. most of the top publishers in the UK. So it's kind of it feels now without sounding cocky like some of this stuff is is starting to come together. And it's definitely been a a slow burn. Um, so yeah, start started a while back. Um, but then was also based in New York in 2016 to help set up our US office, uh, which was a lot of fun, actually. 
Uh, and that's also where I met my fiance in my last week uh, of being based in, in New York. Wow. Uh, so I, I owe Octopus a lot, uh, Lovely. indirectly. Lovely. So, yeah. It's an awesome journey, man. There's, there's so much in there that I want to talk about. And we'll definitely talk about Octopus a bit more in a second. But in terms of that journey, so I have, I have to start with this rare breed pig farm, right? So <laughs> do you think, do you, th- you, you've sort of gone to business straight away, right? That, that seemed to be um, just not, well, not a calling, but like your instinct was to just go towards business, I suppose, unless it was like a super interest in rare breed pigs, I don't know, but clearly there was an interest in business for you. Do, do you think that, I, th- I think nowadays there's this kind of default to go to university, right? And perhaps that is changing. I do feel and see the tide changing slightly, but you're somebody who obviously did something different. Do you think the world would benefit from that a bit more? More people in rare breed pig farms, perhaps, or other businesses similar, rather than this default of going to university? Yeah, massively. I think there's a, and I'm probably quite hypocritical on this, but there is, there is a big risk of being like very snobbish between people that have been to academic institutions and people that haven't. Um, yeah. There's an amazing book uh, by a guy, I forget his name, called The Case for Doing Things with Your Hands. And, nice. And he was, I think, one of the top Harvard philosophy professors, but also ran a motorbike repair shop on the side. Amazing. And his view was like, actually, you can be very smart and very articulate and wiggle your way out of puzzles and problems. But if you're a mechanic, like if this engine doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so it's very binary and it forces you really to like engage with puzzles in a very like straightforward way. And so I, I have a lot of respect for that. Um, I think your piece around, like, I'm interested by like commercial stuff and, and mm. like business, but I probably think it's less sophisticated than that. It's more that I like building things yeah, and I like learning about stuff and in some ways, like the pig farm was the ultimate example of learning about stuff in that I just knew nothing yeah. about farming. Um, but, but it was also like physically, like, and tangibly like building something. Yeah. And that's, and that's just quite fun and like very rewarding. Yeah. No, I love that. The next bit of your journey that I want to talk about is the Samaritans bit. And, ha- you know, you mentioned how important and effective that is. One thing you mentioned alongside that was radical candor something that you learned in the Samaritans I've read a lot about radical candor I think it's really interesting how necessary that seems to be in a leader in running a business in lots of different things I think it's also very difficult it's definitely a skill and it's definitely something that I can see was probably probably taught in, in, in the run-up to becoming one, but also, I suppose, exercised and improved and, you know, refined as someone who was, you know, on the other end uh, of the Samaritans. Can you talk to me a bit about radical candor and I suppose how, how important you have felt it is and, and have, you in, have you used it? I suppose I, I expect you have used it as an investor, particularly in those pitch meetings. So I think um, I'd be really interested for you to ask the same question either to the CEOs that I work with or like yeah. team members. Uh, in that one of our one of our kind of octopus values is around uh, being straightforward. Mm. And I 
typically win win that award um and, I, and it's probably actually one of the awards that i'm most proud of yeah and, uh, i think if i think about my and this sounds very like self-indulgent um but if i think about how i'd like to be described by portfolio companies like the, the radical candor bit and being told how it is is probably like a big part of where i see my role and yeah, value and value to, yeah to them uh I think like the idea of radical candor versus like ruinous empathy, mm. I think is a, is a fantastic one. I think especially when you're looking at developing people within teams or portfolio companies, I think it's really unfair to expect people just to guess what your expectations are or, or guess what your feedback is that you're not giving. And so I, I'd far rather deal with that awkward conversation People feel a little bit bruised for 24 hours, but then there'd be never any doubt about like what you actually feel. So I think it's probably for me one of the principles that I I always come back to. Mm. And I think radical candor is is probably more useful in a business setting. I think with the Samaritan stuff, there was another concept there that I thought was really interesting, which was the idea of being unshockable. Um, and because you never knew. Like I was based at the Samaritan station in Chelmsford and you, we would be open to people walking in. So you would have walk-ins, you would have phone calls, you would have emails and text messages. So you could have someone who was considering ending their life that would walk in and want to talk to you. And being in a position where it didn't matter what they said, that you would be unshockable and sit there and, and engage with some really like, like incredibly difficult topics uh was amazing like tiring like it, it takes a lot of energy um but but i uh, i was kind of honored that, that people would would come and, and actually share that kind of stuff that is incredible training for being unshockable when i reflect on that i actually think that's how being a medic can also help in business as well, particularly something high stage. You know, I was in anaesthetics and, you know, if, if a surgeon cuts an artery and all of a sudden it's all hands on deck, if you are shocked by that, you're starting, you know, your revs on the emotional scale start going up seven, eight, nine, ten 10 out of 10, all of a sudden you're paralyzed by emotion and you can't actually act to solve the problem. You have to be unshockable. And I think, Perhaps that is why so many medics, one of the reasons, one of their strengths perhaps in business, those that have had that kind of, I'm not going to be shocked training in medicine, perhaps that that is a reason for it. I think, yeah, in the Samaritans, I can completely see that any communication method at any time, anything with extreme swings in severity in terms of how severe something might be. But again, if you're shockable, you can't act in the most appropriate way because your emotions might cloud your judgment and cloud your action. And so, yeah, that is that de- I can definitely, definitely see how that is, uh, how that is a strength and what training to have and what great advice that is actually, I think for people listening, I think people might have an inkling to do that. And, and I would say like, don't do an MBA, do a year, do a year with Samaritans and do a load of interesting internships and placements in mm. like, very cool companies but to your mm. point around like should we be pushing people to university i reckon you do you do and you do four or five months 
in, in a bunch of companies. Maybe some are successful, some are not successful. And you'll learn so much there, plus some other very well-selected uh, kind of like volunteering or like community stuff. Like, yeah. Incredible. Interesting. Yeah, you don't, learn, you don't learn to drive in a classroom, do you? So Nice. Let's talk about Octopus. There's a couple of things you mentioned that I think are super interesting. The fact that you went from an intern all the way up to where you are now, I think is interesting. The fact that there are still organizations that you can do that in is quite interesting and uh, encouraging. There's also something around time as well, the sort of longevity of an investor, or even I suppose the horizons of an investor. The fact that you talked about eight years later, things starting to come together and you think of 10-year funds or 15-year funds and that kind of life cycle and having to invest early and watch companies grow and often hope for the best or at least help them on that journey as well perhaps but yeah so those concepts are interesting to me and then obviously the things that you guys are doing at octopus are interesting to me so tell me all about the fund what you guys do who you guys invest in how you make decisions what the team looks like and yeah talk to me about what time feels like in a in a VC fund? Okay, nice, nice, nice simple question. <laughs> um, the, so, so, like, zoom out. Team of sixty people, based between London and New York. Uh, we have a number. We have five specific sector specialist teams. So we have a fintech team, a deep tech team, a consumer team a software team and a health team so i run our health team and these are the pods right you call them pods? these are pods we call yeah. them pods um and so within health there's 10 of us mixture of academics with phds in like synthetic biology computational genetics we've got like the technical bases covered off uh we've also got practicing clinicians which gives us that kind of real world angle uh we've also got commercial folks that have worked in businesses like GSK, mm. NHS, like legit, like loads of loads of kind of great experiences that we kind of pull together, and so then within us as a team, so we're a, a kind of multi-stage investor. So everything from a couple hundred grand into an amazing team with like a very cool idea to leading like Series B stage rounds with businesses, with proven products and kind of just executing hard and, and funding that growth. And so kind of everything in between. So, it, so it's very broad in terms of the types of companies we get involved in. We've got about 19 health companies uh, in the portfolio. More broadly as a team, we've got about 100 plus uh, portfolio companies. And, and the pod structure actually works quite well. It started off as an experiment and has now become a a core part of how we're looking to scale our business uh, in that actually, even when you talk about health, there are so many overlaps with other domains and areas. And so something like Overture, which is a, a business that we invested in, in alongside Kozler and, and Google Ventures, that uses microfluidics and robotics to completely rethink the way that we do embryology to try and drive increased success rates in assisted reproduction. And actually, whilst that clearly has strong applications in health, our deep tech team who invest in robots, rockets, like an, an all manner of like really sexy stuff, like for us, it's great to be able to pull them in and say, look, actually there's overlaps here. We want to leverage some of your specialisms for a health business. 
equally within something like fertility where you've got businesses like Pricity or Gaia where some of the puzzle is around kind of the payer and fintech and how do you price risk and probability there it's like amazing like let's pull in our our fintech folks and so like we're an investor in like bought by many like probably one of the most successful insurance businesses in the uk like i purchased that insurance for my dog i'm glad your your dog is in safe hands he is um and and actually for us like whilst we are a health investor like whilst i focus like all my time on on health companies um the broader team structure is is actually quite powerful um because actually we have the benefits of specialism within health, but also the, the broader stuff. Um, so I suppose that's a bit more about like team structure, how we're set up. In terms of like health and how we think about it, there are four like broad categories that, that we, where we spend our time and we do a fair amount of research around each of these. Um, so the first one is around brain health. And so that's everything from like big health doing like cognitive behavioral therapy around insomnia and anxiety. So like very successful US business. Um, Peter's all the way, Okay, Peter's amazing. Um, but then all the way to things like brain computer interface and like neurotech or cannabinoids and psychedelics where I've spent a lot of time researching. Um, so that's kind of our brain health piece. We also have a, a pillar around biomanufacturing. So everything to do with synthetic biology or like cell and gene therapy so we're an investor in ori biotech ori yeah we know those guys um, yeah and, and so if, if ori is successful it could genuinely broaden the applications of some of the most impressive scientific breakthroughs within oncology where actually manufacturing and getting products into users hands is probably one of the largest barriers that that, that field faces and so stuff around biomanufacturing is is really important and we've got a, a team that that have the credentials to, to, to really like invest properly in that field uh our other pillar uh, and i know this is one that that i think you're definitely aware of is around like taboo and longevity yeah and so we're an investor in lv uh, i think we're one of the first investors in lv with the, the silent breast pump business a more broader... Tanya's been on. <laughs> okay, you, 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 you've made your way. Picking off all earlier. your clients, dude. Honestly, um, and and so like businesses like LV or businesses like Skin and Me, which is direct to consumer oh, yeah. dermatology, or Quit Genius, which is around yeah. substance addiction, uh, and I think now probably the most successful business globally on how you should address um, addiction. A business led by clinicians, yeah, um, but scaling aggressively in, in the US uh and so that that's kind of our our taboo pillar we've also not announced yet but invested in an lgbt sexual health business a men's um sexual health business a digital contraceptives business like all of that fits within taboo nice. um it is a field that i care like a lot about and i think we we've probably only just scratched the surface in terms of these areas of health that make people blush but actually commercially are also huge huge opportunities and like very important businesses and then our fourth uh fourth pillar is around like personalization and understanding like risk within patient groups and so we're an investor in a business called ibex which uses oh, yeah. so it probably computer vision pathology stuff yeah exactly yeah. so they have 98 percent 
uh, accuracy for determining prostate cancer. I think they were yeah. they were in the Daily Mail as well last week, which is the real claim to fame. Um, <laughs> and, and so actually, like, what can you do there? And, and how does that change the way that we screen, treat uh, and manage cancer? Like, that's just like one example. Yeah. But, but I think more broadly, just we've seen the impact of personalization driving superior results elsewhere so in like the world of ad tech where this is just like bread and butter but but uh increasingly seeing like applications within health and so that across those four like deliberately broad buckets that largely determines like how we build the team and the types of people we hire but, but also like outbound research so we've done a lot of work recently on fertility on cannabinoids on psychedelics um on synbio and and kind of with that structure, it, it helps us take what can otherwise be like unwieldy within health. Like you could you could build a team of 100 people and they could all be like so busy seven days a week doing stuff. Um, but this is this has been our way to date of trying to tame what is a, a massive, massive area with a huge number of opportunities to say, right, OK, this is where we're going to start. And we can build an incredible portfolio just in these areas and then we'll build from there. In terms of the support that you give to companies as well, the reason I ask this is because you talked about kind of, you talked about this from a due diligence perspective, the pods, right? And the fact that you can drag expertise to essentially do due do, do diligence, that's a mouthful, on these different companies that come across you. So the tech team, deep tech team can look at health tech and all the rest of it. Does that count for support as well? Because I imagine, well, I've seen different things that you guys do with help with hiring and help with this, that you, you guys do support your, you actually do support your companies. And then we get this a lot from funds of, of the kind of lip service of we're founder first and we do this and we do that. And it turns out they just have like breakfast with them every now and again. <laughs> but like, yep, yep. Um, how do you guys support your companies and does that pod structure help you? So I'd say over over the last like eight years for me as, as a part of the team, but but longer for for the the team more broadly. Uh, like we've experimented with lots of of ways of helping yeah. companies, um, and I think there's a risk that you fall in a trap that that there's lots of things you could do to be helpful, but actually there's a, a far smaller number of things where you get genuine leverage and you get you could ultimately change the outcome of a business. Okay. And I, think when, I think when we actually boil that down, it's around recruiting and helping yeah. them raise, raise more capital. 100%. Yeah, like, 100%. They, those two, they, yeah. They, they are the two areas where we think that we have like an asymmetric advantage. Yeah. And where we can actually gain some element of network effects across the portfolio. And so we've built out a talent team where we have specialists for each, each one of the pods. Um, so we have a, a specialist talent person who only looks at health. We have a specialist talent person who only looks at, at deep tech. Um, and we get, we get fantastic feedback from our, our portfolio companies on these areas. And, and that team is really tasked to how do we recruit and retain the best talent in, in our portfolio. And that, that can be everything from organizational design to, especially for some of our more technical like biotech, um, portfolio companies which is there's three of us in a lab we've never hired anyone like how do you even do that how do we think about running hiring processes how do you write a job description what what even is culture like how do you do that mm-hmm. um and so then like this team like that's all they do like, yeah. across the portfolio um and, and started off 
like more as an experiment but but that's one where our talent team just get pulled in like the the, the demand there is huge so that's a, that's a big part of, of where we look to help uh, and I look forward to like scaling that team out even more like, yeah. as, as we grow the portfolio. And then the other area is around helping our companies raise capital from the best funds in the world. And so, uh, and I think to your point as well, that, that's also a, an easy one to like talk a big game about, but it's mm-hmm. like, okay, like prove it. <laughs> so, so probably about three, four months ago, we held an event with all of the top tier us and global health funds so like all the logos that you'd expect and all of our health portfolio companies kind of gave updates to all of those companies Mm. and i think there were there were over 70 follow-ups across the portfolio um we actually got two term sheets directly out of that event and so the, the, the the audience are the likes of Kozler, yeah. Final Perkins, yeah. Google Ventures, like all of the folks that you would... The hospital like, really groups in the US to, probably. Like Mayo, yeah, yeah. all of those groups. Yeah, there you go. And, and, and actually for us to like build that infrastructure to say, look, but, and it's, it's quite an interesting like marketplace dynamic that increasingly like US funds are wanting to understand and track like European businesses. And for them, like they can either go like door to door or we will help them just see the best businesses in Europe. And so our event wasn't just Octopus portfolio companies. There was a small number of companies that we weren't invested in, but we thought were just amazing. And we wanted to kind of help them out. And so it works for a lot of the US folks, but also for our portfolio where typically the CEOs have so many other uh, kind of draws on their time that being able to, to effectively update all of the tier one global health investors in like five minutes is amazing leverage for them in terms of their time. So I think more and more we're trying to build smart ways of our portfolio, understanding like how they could uh, access like tier one investors. And I think as a team, we're, that isn't just something we're doing on the side. That is a, is a big part of, of how we want to build our business. Mm-hmm. We also have our office in New York, um, which is only there to help our, our companies think about how they should approach the US. Interesting. And it's quite interesting for me, like across some of our other sub teams. So like within FinTech, you can build a very large business just based in the UK. I think within health, the role of the US is, is even more prominent. Uh, and so if I look at like the top 20 companies started in the UK or Europe um, within health, there's only like two or three that don't have us investors or like big us clients and so i think the 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 role of the us for health businesses is is huge and for us to be able to walk those companies into those conversations that they want to have or also leverage the portfolio so you've got like big health with peter they have an incredible partnership with like cvs health Mm. or quit genius who have their partnership with express scripts and are involved with some of the largest like payers and, and health providers in the US. Like being able to leverage those US experiences across the portfolio for companies that are maybe two, three, four years earlier in that journey is also like really important. So, so I think it's essential. I think it's essential because on the VC model, you need these people going for a billion, right? And are the markets big enough in the UK alone? No. 
Are they big enough across Europe? Maybe if they were to get every, but really, if you crack the US, there's a huge problem solved there in terms of scale to give you guys the returns you want. So it almost seems to me that if you're thinking of getting VC money, you have to have a globally applicable technology solution plan, et cetera, et cetera, because otherwise there's only so many NHS trusts you can actually sell to. And, and so you need to capture what? 200% of the market to make that viable for, yeah. for VC money. So I think I think that expansion into US piece is absolutely critical. And I suppose on, on, that, on those lines of what we've talked about before about radical candor and obviously the US market being a necessity or globally applicable technology solutions being necessary, what do you look for in founders and companies? I know there'll be a lot of people listening that might want to approach Octopus is it worth approaching Octopus for most people? What do you actually look for? So firstly, like definitely reach out. All of our contact details are online. I'm will at octopusventures.com. Like email me, like would love to, to start a conversation. In terms of what we look for as a team, I think it's probably a hard, harder one to generalize. I think if you ask 10 people in our team, you'll probably get 20 different answers on this. Yeah. Um, but but my, my personal set of biases slash yep. interests i think you've got the obvious ones first which are more just qualification criteria around could this be a billion dollar business like that 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 is driven more by fund mandate rather than my preferences like that just has to be there and is there something like genuinely pioneering here and so like with infertility as a more recent example when we did that research there's lots of interesting businesses with incremental improvements that, that they're providing but is, is that enough to, to really like redefine a category probably not versus like overture where their view is we're just going to rebuild from the ground up like that that gets me really fired up or something like quit genius which is here is a fundamentally new and superior way to treat substance addiction like great like that that is the 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 caliber of, of ambition that we look for. Um, but then, especially at the earlier stage, it is just, and this, this sounds like a kind of broken record, but it is all just about the team. But mm -hmm. specifically within that, like my, my preferences are for people that operate at pace. And there's proxies for understanding that. So even things like email response times or actually when you said that you were going to move fast like what does fast actually mean to you uh like we're an investor in kazoo with alex chesterman right I, I like that that business grew and, and surpassed like all of the i think records for for, for actually going from zero to a billion in probably yeah. like sub three years like like pace for us is is important if you're going to win i think the other part is around like hiring capability like it's frustrating for me when we see amazing founders, but actually their ability to, and as much as we can help on this, like if, if the founders don't understand their role as, high, as being hiring machines and only hiring A players, then, then that's probably going to place a, an early ceiling on the business. And so I think understanding how to attract amazing people and arguably attract people that shouldn't say yes. Like, I love it when you've got a business that's at idea stage and they're ripping people out of 
like businesses where clearly they're being paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or walking away from like mega equity uh, kind of components as well. Because actually the way that the CEO has sold them on where this business is going, it makes them do like irrational things. And so finding, <laughs> finding founders that can, can cheat logic in terms of attracting amazing people, that gets me fired up. Uh, and I think the other one is around like, balance being straightforward and being really open like i react really badly to being sold to mm. versus actually founders that are very open about like this is what i know this is what i don't know and this is how i'm going to figure it out uh like i'd probably say like joe at permutive is for me like the F, like is probably the best example or even like yusuf at quit genius like yeah. incredible and so like board packs or any communication start with this isn't this isn't working and this is our hypothesis of how we're going to fix it you shouldn't be worried about it yet but if we haven't fixed it by next month you should be worried um rather than just like selling which which i just find it really hard to build a trusted relationship yes. when you're like this is a this is a sales deck yes. and, and you're, you're 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 giving me a sales bill here um so pace hiring incredible people and being balanced and open are probably my personal personal ones which is probably why if i look at my the, the set of ceos that i work most closely with today are, are largely technical founders because yeah. i i typically find like that ilk of founder actually lends themselves better to, to those attributes but mm. arguably it'll probably be in another 10 years that we'll be able to say whether those that those whether my shopping list is, is actually uh, correlates to, to, to backing great businesses. And just on that, obviously having to then wait 10 years, it's interesting. Is yours a 10-year fund? Is it evergreen? How are you set up in that perspective? So our main fund is an evergreen fund. So yeah. we, we raise and deploy circa 200 million a year, um, which means that actually for our winners, that we can really continue to, to, to back them a yeah. long way. Uh, which is which is a, a great model f- for us to have. That's awesome, man. What does it look like for the next twelve months then, in terms of your investments? I mean, how many companies do you invest in a year in healthcare? We've quite aggressively scaled the team, and now we've we've built quite meaningful momentum uh, within health, and I don't see that changing. So, within the last twelve months, we made nine new health investments, which I think puts us as if not number one, definitely number one or number two across wow. Europe. In terms Was that of across sense. levels, early to late stage as well? Yep. So everything yeah, everything from C, Series A, Series B. Uh, and, and I don't see that changing. If anything, mm. I'd like our pace to, to, to increase because I think we're, we're seeing like incredible founders. So it's definitely not market constrained. And so, yeah, more of the same, perhaps, if anything, a bit more. Just on that question then, you see a lot of stage specific funds you see a lot of sector specific funds obviously funds pick something to specialize in a business model a customer as i say a stage or or something like that do you then think it's the same skill set that can spot a good early stage seed business as could crunch the numbers and go series a to series b or b to c etc is it the same people in your team that do that is it the same expertise and is there a reason that you haven't selected for stage? I don't think there's a 
a fundamental reason why a an amazing seed investor can't be an amazing Series C investor. Uh, I think if you've built your own portfolio and you've seen companies go through that whole cycle yourself, it probably actually makes you a better all round. That's investor. interesting. Yeah, so you um, followed them through. Yeah, but but the, but one one observation that I think I've definitely made as we've built our team is that like the confidence and conviction to say we should we should partner with these founders when it is just an idea and it is just a view on team like that is that is quite quite a bold bet if you've only been in the team for like 6 to 12 months and so i do find it's quite interesting if you compare like the best venture capital teams versus the best uh, private equity teams where like the best private equity teams typically have a small number of senior people and loads of junior people who can because there's a lot to analyze whereas within venture especially at the early stage there isn't much to analyze yes and so having a small number of senior people where like intuition slash pattern recognition for want of a An better phrase yeah. is, is probably more valuable um and so i think as, as a team grows hopefully you, you grow your capability to to be able to invest across all stages uh but but it's definitely an observation that that we've made as we've grown out the, the team and expected more recent joiners to, to 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 try and lead on on seed deals where it does take a bit longer to to gain that confidence. Awesome. And one final question would be: What is exciting to you? <clears throat> Excuse me. What is exciting to you at the minute? Is there a specific clinical area? type of cut is is there somebody that you just want to come out of the woodwork and pitch to you is there someone that you've already got that's super exciting or things that you're potentially looking at yeah I, i'm i'm gonna have to dodge the question with with not giving <laughs> one um I, i'm embarrassed that we haven't partnered yet with a menopause business i, okay. I think this this ticks all of the fundamentals of why we that are excited by taboo businesses yeah um there are a couple of good ones around and some amazing teams like that that for me has to happen. Yeah, uh, I think an area that I have got really excited about, but but haven't spent enough time on, is like vocal biomarkers uh, and broader yes. biomarkers. I think that's like really interesting. Uh, I, as a team, we we continue to do a lot in, in fertility, and we'll announce a, a number of new deals in the next couple of weeks. And then probably the other area which has been my like research slash play area is around like psychedelics and cannabinoids yeah. and it's quite an interesting field like there's a real mix of, of entrepreneurs and, and folks going after it from biotech to consumer but i think the, the early clinical data is is really interesting around treatment resistant depression or addiction or anorexia and so i think something will be done there and it is being done there but i think it is a very it is a class of of treatment and therapeutics that is unlike any other where you can't get ip protection on a naturally derived compound so therefore how do you get pharma comfortable in investing billions into a clinical area where they can't actually get ip protection like what does that mean and so that the whole value chain for bringing therapeutics in these areas to market and then also administering them where actually like you look at compass or atai and the psychedelic space where it isn't just 
here's your pill, take it at home. It is a whole guided treatment more akin to chemotherapy, where it's like is an inpatient uh, experience. And so it's, there's a whole new infrastructure that is needed to bring a, and unlock that clinical value. Similar to, I suppose, our core thinking around like ORI and cell and gene therapy of this this will be a massive class of, of drugs and and superior science here but how do you get that to market and there's there's lots of i think very valuable and important businesses that will be built but they are still very like early stage and, and, and nascent fields i can see why that's that's exciting i mean i mean yeah we i work with the biotech and I mean, anything that says they can drop the cost of a, a leukemia treatment drug by 90%, all of a sudden you just start, so, like, you know, the one person that gets it a year goes from that to that it is actually used and it's got nice guidance and then everybody get you know, it's genuinely stuff that it actually changes things very practically, very tangibly, and you can see an effect globally for a huge amount of people. And it's, it's easy to get excited about that stuff, frankly. And I think the... The challenge is finding those ludicrously ambitious individuals with the skill sets, with the teams, with the ability to grow those teams and execute on that stuff. And yeah, in a lot of ways, rather you than me on, on that search. But mm-hmm. um, well, it's been a pleasure having you on. I've, I've loved hearing about this. We had Guillaume from Octopus on ages and ages and ages ago. I know he's, he's gone on to do different things now, but yeah, we had him on ages ago. So it's nice to hear what you guys are up to and the things that you're involved in. I think those four categories within health tech are extremely valuable. The amount of value you, we're going to get from brain health and biomanufacturing that talks about all the taboo stuff that nobody else is as comfortable, I think, as you guys investing in is is proving dividends. Just the sheer volume of your investees that we've had on this podcast probably says a great deal. The fact that I tend to go after the most successful people. So I won't ask you a percentage of your hit rate, but it's uh, it's pretty good, the, the, the amount of people on the way to a billion, seemingly. But um, as I say, mate, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks, James. Really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. And if you want to grab Will, you can get him at Will at Octopus Ventures. I'll stick his email in the description of this episode uh, and obviously the Octopus website. Thanks so much. Cheers, James. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.